but my shin sort of all of a sudden it, like it's sort of like a rubber band broke you know uh, it was like ping I was like oh there it is and then I had to deal with painful issues for about I think eight days seven or eight days or something until it finally subsided but I had to push through all that This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 241, Carl Meltzer talks about setting the Appalachian Trail speed record in 45 days, 22 hours, and 38 minutes. Hey, before we get going, I wanted to share a new event with you guys. Janet Wittick contacted us about the Cal 100. It's a 100-mile endurance race for paddlers on the Sacramento River in California. The event benefits Rivers for Change and the Sac River Trust. If you want more information about it, check out riversforchange.org slash California 100. We'll put the link in our show notes at adventuresportspodcast.com for those of you who can't jot it down right now. Thanks to Janet for sharing this event with us. We're always happy to help you guys get the word out about your local events. Just contact us through the site. Now on to the speed goat, Carl Meltzer. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. With 38 100-mile ultramarathon wins under his belt, including five Hard Rock 100 victories... Carl Meltzer holds more 100-mile race wins than any other ultra runner. After three attempts to break the Appalachian Trail speed record, he finally undercut Scott Jurek's 2015 time by 10 hours this past September. Carl is on with me today to let us know how it feels to be the fastest person on the AT. Carl, first of all, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, Travis, thanks for having me. It's always cool to be with Adventure Sports and uh, you know talk about my... Uh... Random adventure I had last summer. It's quite an experience for me. <laughs> Random adventure. Well, I want to dig into that, man. But before we uh, get too much into the weeds on the on the AT, let's talk about ultra running um, in and of itself. How did you end up getting into ultra running? How, ultra running? How does somebody just kind of slip into that? Well, it's funny with ultra running. I, I sort of did just slip into it. I, I was always a runner when I was younger, so that was sort of the easy part. But, you know, I moved out to Utah to be a ski bum in 1989 and didn't really plan on being here for, you know, the remainder of my life. But, you know, I met some friends over the summer, some runner friends. We did some shorter races. But then in 1990, I think the spring of 1996, a friend of mine named Rick Gates, who had finished the Wasatch 100 a number of times, suggested I should run the Wasatch 100. And I said, why would I want to do that? <laughs> you know, I, I was running Pikes Peak Marathon was a big race for me at that time. But. You know, bottom line is, I said, yeah, sure, why not? I'll jump in and see what happens. And like most ultra marathoners will tell you, I think, uh, it becomes very addictive. And it, it hurt. It hurt like hell. You know, when I finished, I never wanted to do it again. But, you know, a few days pass. And then all of a sudden, you're like, where do I sign up again? And that's sort of the very beginning. That was my first ultra. So that was sort of how I got started in doing it. And then, you know, the, the next couple of years, um, I just watched that 100 was the big race. It's local, you know, it's right in my backyard here. And that was really the focus. And then after winning the race in 1998, I sort of thought to myself, well, you know, maybe we have something here. So, you know, I just kept doing it. And as I slowly progressed through my career, I, you know, became a sponsored runner, um, professional runner. And now I coach people since 2008. And uh, it's been a really great ride. It really was a, 
a path that I didn't necessarily think was going to happen for me when I moved to Utah to, to bust tables and to ski powder. But, uh, you know, it, it, a lot of things have fallen in my lap, and this was really one of them. And now I just sort of used ultra running to, uh, you know, just to keep my life going and to enjoy my life without having to work for anyone else. Yeah, I don't think you have to worry about uh, fitness at any point. I mean, if you got an addiction like that, you know, what's the <laughs> what's the point of going out to a gym or something like that? You know, you you have it built in at this point. Well, well, that's true. I kind of consider I consider the the outdoors my gym. You know, I, I I'm. It's funny that you said the gym. I the last time I was in a gym, I think I played a basketball when I was in eighth grade. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so it's really not been my thing to really go to the gym, I sort of like say, well, what can I do outdoors to simulate, you know, obviously when you go to the gym, there's a lot of specific things you can do, which is great. Nothing wrong with that. But I, I more of look at running through the mountains as being, you know, my passion. So I'll find a way to get an upper body workout by carrying some rocks or something silly like that, just to, so it's not so repetitive at the, you know, indoors. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for your intro, I kind of went through it pretty quickly, but it it warrants some uh, some digging into. So, thirty eight one hundred mile wins. I mean, to win thirty eight of them, how many have you ri- uh, run? It, it, yeah, I've run uh, seventy five. So I've got wow. that fifty fifty point five percent win percentage. Um, yeah, I've run a lot, and it's kind of funny when I I really started getting into the hundred mile distance in the early two thousands when. When I first won Hard Rock in 2001, where I, I, at the time anyway, I broke the record by three hours. And, you know, at the time, people thought, well, no one's going to touch that. That'll last forever. Well, records never last forever. But when I finished that race that day, I said to myself, you know, as much as I said it in 1998 when I won Wasatch, I said, well, maybe we have something here. I really like the 100 because it's not just like how fast you are, how much cardio strength do you have, how much speed do you have. It also involves strategy, and I've always liked to be a strategist when it comes to racing or even doing other things in my life, so it sort of fit in to say, well, the 100-mile distance is my distance, so I started to increase my number of hundreds I would run per year, and in the first few years that I ran, say, three or four of them, it was sort of like, I wonder how it's going to feel if I run four, you know? I mean, is it going to ruin my body? Is it going to kill me? Um, Obviously, it didn't kill me yet. I think I just learned how to strategize well, and that's one of the reasons I won a lot of those races. I didn't lead a lot of those races early. I sort of just played my cards right and ended up on top. I mean, to, to say someone might do that again you know, now is definitely harder just because competition is so much stiffer, and a lot of guys are definitely focusing on one or two events per year as opposed to me who is just saying, oh, I'll run 100 every two months, you know? Um, it's a little tougher to win a lot more right now, but at the same time, uh, it was it was a pretty cool experience to be able to run six to eight hundreds a year and actually win a number of them a bunch of times. You know, and all of a sudden it was, you know, I passed Dan Trayson who had twenty two hundred mile wins, and that was sort of a goal at the time. And that year, I'm going to guess was about two thousand seven or eight or something. I'm not exactly sure, but um, you know, then it was like, well, how many can I tack on now just to kind of put it out of reach? And at this point, I don't know if I'll be able to tack on two anymore, but but uh, it's a cool record to have. I mean, it's not the greatest thing in the world for, you know, who's who really knows. But um, for me personally, um, I had this drive and this goal, and I achieved that goal. So it was pretty important for me to do that. 
Yeah, well, I think at this point, I mean, with that kind of resume under your belt, I don't think you have anything to prove. I mean, I think you'd be pretty proud about your your accomplishments to this this point. You know, you know the funny thing you say is, I, I don't. You're right. I get. I really don't have anything to prove, and I, I try to tell myself that, but for some reason, I keep on raising the bar. I keep on raising, <laughs> wanting to raise the bar. You know, right. it's like with the Appalachian Trail. Like, why did I need to do that? I mean, sure, it was my third try. Um, I, you know, I had some unfinished business there, but still. When I first ran the AT in 2008, um, that was about myself sort of raising the bar on myself again. When I when I think I even had that 2,200 mile wins past Dan Trayson, so it's just it's in my blood. It's my addiction, you know. Um, it's how I'm wired. So it's it's. I think when you turn like I'm 49 years old now, I think when you get older, you you, you do have to come to realize that hey, I'm not going to win any more big races or I'm not going to you know, win another hundred. And, and I'm not saying I won't, I, I still hope I will, but you have to realize that, you know, everyone's uh, peak time comes to an end. Right. So it happens. It happens. I mean, I'm just out here thankful that I've done what I've done and I can definitely sit on my laurels for a while and, and just see what's around the next corner, which I really don't know at the moment. Oh yeah, no doubt. Well, and I imagine you're going to end up being the guy, you know, the the 75 year old, 80 year old out there running regular marathons, still whooping up on the 25 year olds. <laughs> well, uh, well, we shall see. I think, uh, you know, I think the funny thing is, you say that I look back at some of my um, my peers, a guy named John Dewalt, a guy named Hans Dieter Weishar. I don't know if you know of those guys, but they've John Dewalt and Hans Dieter both were in their 70s when they finished Hard Rock. Wow. And early 70s, 71 or two. And I think John DeWalt is the oldest at 72 or three. But, um, you know, those guys are so inspiring to see what they've done. Uh, but it's not really about speed, you know. It's just about being out there to do it. And I would certainly love to say when I'm 70 years old, I can run any 100 mile. It doesn't have to be hard rock, you know. Um, that would be really cool. I I, I kind of hope that I'm just playing golf instead but because <laughs> <laughs> I love playing golf too. But, uh, yeah, I mean – Running's in my blood, and I'll always be out there in the mountains, whether it's walking fast, running, walking slow. I don't think that matters. I think for most people, I, I think what's important to them is to do what you like to do. And for me, it's being out in the woods. Doesn't have to be, doesn't always have to be a race, especially anymore. I mean, I I love to go to races and and to compete because no matter where you are in the field, you're still competing with the guy in front of you or the girl behind you or the girl in front of you or the guy behind you, whatever. Uh, it, it's it's fun to be out there, and I'm just going to keep doing that as long as I can. Yeah, I wondered about that. So, do you think it's um, do you think it's more of a we, we keep saying addiction? It's kind of an odd word to use for that. But do you think it's a, a matter of being out there enjoying the environment, or more so a matter of use, utilizing your body? Um, I mean, almost like a machine. I, I have to think uh, mentally that you're powering this activity like this where where does the addiction lie or the the passion lie i guess it's probably a better well, word yeah i think the passion lies just i mean for me anyway it's just i just want to be out there you know i've always been a mover like when i sit around my house and if i if i sit on the couch for 20 minutes you know it's like i feel like i've got to get up and i've got to do something right um it's it's pretty out of control i mean for me to sit and watch a movie i'd it better be really good <laughs> or i have no chance you know um but i think when when you're a runner or you know just a just an athlete in general who likes to go out and run around the woods a lot the satisfaction comes from just being out there um you don't always have to be fast it doesn't matter how fast you are we're all in the same same boat sort of doing this together you know 
So I think it's one one of the coolest things about ultra running in general is that you can you have all these elite athletes and in some sports it's it's almost like they're untouchable. You can't really talk to them. You wouldn't be able to go walk up to LeBron Jones, LeBron James, and say, "Hey, let's go take a few shots." You right, know, right. that ain't happening. You know, um, but it's highly likely that you'll see one of the elite athletes at an ultra marathon where you can sit down and have a couple beers with them afterwards and everything's kind of the same. So anyway, you know, I don't know if that answers the question or not, but it's ultra running to me has been just about from pushing the limits for myself, not necessarily out for anyone else. I just kind of like to do what I want to do and not have to really, uh, answer to anyone else. You know, um, it's, it's just, that's my passion is the fact that I can just be out there and do what I love to do instead of having to do something for someone else. Yeah. Not that I'm greedy. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying it's fun to, you know, have that time off. Oh no, I totally get it. Yeah. To be out there and being in your own, in your own mind, it's uh that is a, a passion in and of itself. If you've are lucky enough to discover that, you know, to know how to be alone and enjoy it. Um, I, I get it. That is the truth. Knowing how to be alone is important. Um, you spend a lot of times out there thinking about nothing, you know, right. and and people ask me what I think about all the time, and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> just, <laughs> tell ah, it's just the, the tree or the bear or the rock or the root. I don't know. It's uh, it's a funny thing. Whatever comes to mind. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, talk about the the ultra marathons first. Um, Hard Rock 100. Would you consider that the the hardest one you've done? I mean, out of 75, um, it's not 75 different races, but out of 75, what would you consider as the hardest one that you would tackle? Well, Hard Rock is probably the hardest race, uh, for sure. And, and what's crazy about it is what makes Hard Rock so difficult is, well, I mean, there's a number of different things, but the terrain is, in my, in my, uh, t- on my terms, it probably is, is technical. I wouldn't call it super technical because you have a lot of actual service roads up there and you have some funky, tough terrain. But what, what gets you at Hard Rock is the average elevation there is like 11.5, mm-hmm. the average. So, you're constantly up high, and no matter who you are, I don't care what your VO, if your VO2 max is 95, which is you know about the highest ever recorded. That doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to hurt. <laughs> um, so I think there's sort of an equilibrium when you go up so high at Hard Rock that it makes it that much difficult. And then you know then you've got 33,000 feet of gain, you've got rocky terrain, you've got afternoon thunderstorms that are almost guaranteed to happen. So you have these variables that you have to deal with. I mean, I've run I've run UTMB, which is a fabulous course, you know, near Chamonix, uh, near Mont Blanc, and that's that course is probably in a in a sense maybe more spectacular because you're you're running around Mont Blanc, which is if you've ever been to Chamonix or anyone's been to Chamonix, that place is pretty amazing. Oh yeah, so it Hard Rock, it's crazy. I mean, Hard Hard Rock has, Hard Rock is tougher though, I think, because the altitude is higher. Uh, in Chamonix, the Grand Col Ferré, the highest point there, I think, is 7,800 feet. So, which is which isn't even the lowest point of Hard Rock, which is Uray at about 7,900 feet. So, that's what makes Hard Rock really tough um, is the altitude and just the variability of uh, again the weather. I mean, the weather can, you know, people have been. We won't say they've been struck by lightning, but it sure has been awfully close a few times. And uh, all you can do is you know duck into a mine tunnel if you're lucky, but. Uh, that one's probably the hardest, but there's there's a lot of other hard races too. If you look at a, a dead flat, I mean, I've run a or attempted to run a 24 hour run on a track before, and someone think, well, that's that's easy, it's flat. Well, I can assure you that it's not easy. 
because you're using the same muscles all the time, mm -hmm. all the way around for 24 hours, right? So that soreness goes even deeper into your into your deep muscles, and I think I think the flatter course is actually harder because you you don't really if you're going to do well and you're sort of an elite runner, you're really not going to walk at all, so you don't get that rest period of walking. Um, that's hard. <laughs> so there's a lot of ways to look at what's hardest, but in terms of terrain, elevation, gain, things like that, hard rock definitely fits the bill for the toughest one that I've ever done. There's there's tougher ones out there now. There's different races in Europe. There's Ronda Del Sims in Andorra that climbs more. There's Barkley Marathons, which is I'm not sure what that is. That's just an experience for anyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> that means fifty, 50 you know fifty thousand feet of climb in about 120 miles for that race. Uh, wow. Your orienteering it's different. It's different. Um, and it's you know they say where the race that eats it's young and that one is true is true. About four, I think 14 people have finished it now in probably more than 14 years. So it's pretty crazy to think that that's harder than hard rock. It just really depends on what, how you look at it. And there's different ways to what, how to measure what hard really is. Right, right. All right. So the Appalachian Trail, um, you've been you've been working at this one. You just didn't hop on the trail and and run it and and all of a sudden beat the record. Um, mm -hmm. You. Grew up, if I understand right, uh, in New Hampshire, right near the trail. Is that right? That's correct. I grew up in uh, southern New Hampshire. Okay, so you had some familiarity with it. I'm sure you've mm -hmm. uh, you had hiked it uh, to some degree. So you you tried uh, what back in 2008 was your first correct. attempt, right? That's right. And so tell me about that. How that first attempt um, occurred, what happened, and then your second attempt, and how it led into you finally uh, conquering it in 2015. Yeah, so in 2000, the Appalachian Trail 2008 was my first, as I mentioned earlier, I started to raise the bar, right? Well, it's kind of funny how I was even able to to kind of get that uh, get that started and get the idea going. I was recruited by Backcountry.com. A couple of my buddies actually owned the company, and they started an athlete team. I brought the idea of me running the whole Appalachian Trail, blogging, giving away a prize, you know, all kinds of different things um, to enhance the media. And I never thought that would go over like, yeah, let's do it. Well, they came back and said, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so, then, so, well, you know, and I was, and I was excited, but I, I didn't really know what I was going in for. I knew, you know, sure. I had won a bunch of races and hundreds. And I certainly have ability to go long, but the Appalachian trail is a whole nother beast. I mean, it's not just, how good of a hundred mile runner are you? It's how good, how well can you hold up for 46 days? You know, I mean, there's so much more involved in terms of crewing and, and just your amount you're eating, you're sleeping, all these types of your injuries, your issues, blisters, chafing, all kinds of stuff. So I didn't really know what to expect then. I sort of did just jump on the trail and go for it then. Uh, you know, I did a little research. I looked at, I got all the maps. I looked at all that kind of stuff. That doesn't really give you the experience of what it's really like there. You have to sort of go there and get on the trail for a while and understand the feel of it because the moment you step on the Appalachian Trail, you have this it's a weird there's a weird aura to it. You sort of just feel like, wow, this is this is a cool place. Whether it's in New Jersey, Maine or Virginia, it doesn't really matter. It's sort of all it's all a green tunnel, you know. Um so our our time in two thousand eight was you know, I, I made a pretty good run at it early, and for what it was worth, I mean, for for it to be the rainiest week in Maine in August that's that they've ever seen 
was already started off on a bad note. I mean, I was crossing rivers that were chest deep and should have been ankle deep. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty scary. Uh, you know, I was with Matt Hart. A friend of mine was running all the miles in Maine with me. So, you know, there was that extra person security thing there, which was good because there were a couple of times we sort of bear hugged each other and crossed a river, you know? Yeah, that, yeah um, that's how deep it was. And I sort of fought through those issues, which was amazing, really, because my feet were destroyed after day two because of the the wetness and I had blisters on my feet. They were, my shoes were too small, something you'll learn. Um from mistakes uh you really want to go with bigger shoes right off the bat just to give yourself more room and to eliminate some of those factors uh, but i was sucking it up and i was doing okay but i never really i end up getting trench foot <laughs> and then then what happens is you know my, my shins get really tight my basically both my right and my left shins both uh were so sore and injured that i had to sit down for four days so that took the chance of breaking the record sort of all off the table mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're 280 200 miles behind you know it's like it's pretty hard to catch up at that point so but the biggest thing that the coolest thing that really happened is that backcountry.com said hey um if you want to continue we'll support you and i was like yeah i want to continue i just got to sit here for four days so i was able to finish the trail and although i you know i finished it in 54 days almost 55 days it's still deemed a success because I thought to myself in the back of my head, yeah, I'm going to learn from this. And, you know, then I did it and I actually got it done. I had some hard times before I got to the finish as well, but I finished it. But when I did get finished, I said to myself, all right, well, I need to go back to racing and get back on the racing scene because I'm not done with that yet, you know? So I sort of disappeared from the AT for a while. And then finally the bug started itching me again in 2013. And, uh, and I sort of made a plan to put it together for 2014 with just a couple of buddies of mine, very stealth, my own van, no real media, just kind of like off the radar a little bit. And, you know, then I went after that attempt and uh, ends up being a failed attempt, too. And I did say because I was funding it myself that if I fell behind the record by too much, I would go home. And unfortunately, I did fall. I was having a hard time. I wasn't in very good shape when I started just because of some injury issues. And, but I went anyway and, you know, I fell behind. So I went home and so I basically, I failed, you know, and after that failure, Red Bull contacted me and said, I've been running with Red Bull since 2001. So this was nothing new to them, but they contacted me and said, Hey, you want to do the AT again? And I was like, no way. (laughs) Uh, Of course, I'm I'm never going back to that. Never going back to that damn trail again. But, you know, time passes by, you feel a little better. And, uh, then we started discussing it, and I was pretty committed to going back in about March of 2015 that we would commit to doing it in 2016. And this way, with Red Bull's support, it wasn't just, you know, here's a few dollars and take your van out. It was more like, well, let's get it right, Carl, and do what you need to do to to be satisfied that you'll make a good, solid attempt at it. So what that basically meant is that I went back and forth three or four times to the East Coast. I did a lot more recon I drove the entire trail north to south, which took about a month, and marked off every single road uh, where the crew can meet me, how far it was, just a lot of different details of for the crew because the crew is super important on something like this. I was able to go do all the miles in Maine as a little um, practice run for the first six days where I went like 260 miles in six days, and that was very helpful for me as well. So, you know, basically, long story short is that I was able to put my home, do all my homework, you know, and go after it in 2016 with a good, legitimate 
um, thought in my head that I had a good chance of breaking the record. And and then, you know, when Scott Jurek broke it in 2015, um, I went and helped him as a support crew guy for a couple of weeks, too, because he's my friend. And I just offered to help him out. And that, you know, that turned out to be obviously beneficial for me because I learned a lot about just the crewing side of things, which, you know, I can relate all this, all this information to the people that crewed for me. Um, it wasn't my intent to learn that when I went to help Scott, I just wanted to help him break the record. Right. He just basically jumped in his car, went there and did it and he broke it. So his <laughs> run was pretty darn impressive. Uh, but at the bottom line is I learned from that as well. And, you know, by the time I got to the trail to start in 2016, I was highly familiar with pretty much every nook and cranny of everything. So for me as a runner, I had a lot more confidence this time. And, uh, and again, you know, I only broke it by 10 hours, which the record's stout, but it can go lower. I mean, it can go in the 44-day range, I think, if if we all if we nailed it. Scott got hurt. I got hurt. Jen Farr got hurt. We all had issues that where we lost like a full day or more of time because of it. So it's definitely fair to say that someone will will drop it again by a full day, I bet, pretty soon. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including... Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection, as well as updates on all of their events. Your accomplishment is, is really mind-boggling. 45 days, 22 hours, and 38 minutes to do the entire 2,200 miles of the Appalachian Trail. I mean, that's you just stop and, and of course, it's set in for you. But for the rest of us, you just sit there and think about that. And I just, I'm not even sure I can comprehend it. You know, that's, uh, 
that's just that's a month and a half to to knock that whole thing out where people spend an entire summer doing it. Yeah, wrap wrap your head around that a little bit. And the funny thing is about the whole thing too is that you know I live in Utah, so most of the trails out here they're tough. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's some tough stuff out my back door here, and there's tough stuff around the West. But most most elite runners in the West have, that have never been on the AT, um, like oh, it's East Coast, they're lower. You know, the mountains aren't as high. Um, which of course is the truth, but the, the Appalachian chain is essentially a rock pile. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. Mount Washington in New Hampshire, that's not a rock pile or that's not a mountain. That's a one big cairn. <laughs> so look at it that right. way, right? It's a big pile of rocks. Um, it's, it's very, very technical and it's, and I think the guy, you know, I've said this a number of times to other people too, that when the, when the guy started walking through Maine, Whoever marked the trail in Maine, or whoever created the trail in Maine, just had a bucket of white paint and started putting slashes on trees. And over time, enough people followed those markers, and then it became a footpath. Yeah. Like, they don't really, I mean, yes, they do maintenance. Of course they do. But generally speaking, it's not like they were smoothing any of the part of the trail out. They went over every little knob and ridge that they could. They made it as hard as possible, even places like, Connecticut, New Jersey, Pennsylvania is ridiculously hard. Um, it looks flat as a pancake on paper, but I can assure you it's 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 probably the tough. It may be the toughest state mentally because it is so rocky that you, you just can't move fast over it. Um, so it really it's it's the kind of trail that just beats you down and demoralizes you the entire time until you finally reach the end, which you never really know. Where you are, if you you know if you were dropped off with, and blindfolded, you wouldn't necessarily know exactly where you are unless you were really familiar with the trail. You'd have no idea if you were in New Jersey or, you know, Southern Virginia. Sometimes it's weird. Uh, that's what I like about it so much is that you never really know what's around the next corner. Yeah, right. Well, one of the things that surprised me is you know you think Ultra Runner Appalachian Trail, twenty two hundred miles. You think that I would think there's some running involved, and I'm sure there is to an extent. But you said that your average speed was actually three and a half miles an hour. Right. Yeah, average speed about three and a half. So that's average. That's with stopping, you right. know, at the van. So, but 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 you're fu- it's funny. People say, oh, you ran the AT. Well, I can assure you, after even just hiking the first two days leaving Mount Katahdin in Maine, that <laughs> a run at that point is uh, five miles an hour maybe. Right. So a 12-minute mile, I mean, 12-minute mile is not that fast. Uh, on that terrain, I mean, on that terrain, three and a half miles is, is motoring, but on average. But, you know, if I go on a training run on the AT, if I go back east and I'm home for a week, sure, I'm going to go for some training runs. But it's it's weird. Um Five miles an hour on a when your legs are completely fresh for say a ten mile or through a place like say Vermont, which the it's, it's certainly very hilly, but it's not very technical in Vermont, not that bad. You just don't move that fast. I think the the funniest thing when I, when I talked to Scott Jerick about it when and I didn't know he was even going to a few days before it, but he asked me he's like, well, you know how fast how fast do you move on the AT? Like what's your average speed? And I said, well, you'll never average four miles an hour. And he kind of paused for a second. And he got back to me. He's like, he's like, really? <laughs> You're not serious. And I You're said, dude, my leg. trust me. <laughs> if you average four miles an hour, I mean, you will in certain periods for sure. But, but I mean, over the course of your day, you will not go 48 miles in 12 hours. You won't, you, you won't do it. And, and lo and behold, he started off, he went northbound. He started off on some hilly, but reason, 
pretty reasonably easier terrain. Um, he wasn't even averaging four miles an hour, and he was fresh, you know. So it just goes to show you that that trail, there's something about it that just beats you down, and it just is is just not fast. So for those through hikers that take six months, I mean, more power to them, really. I mean, they they kind of see it all a little bit slower. Right. And there's a lot to be said for that, you know. I mean, I I, I hope that that's me one day too that I just walk it with my wife. I mean, that's sort of our plan. Um, in the you know within the next say five years or something like that to do something like that because you know you get to camp overnight and sleep in the woods with with other people that you don't know and people with trail names as opposed to getting to the van every night cleaning my feet icing my shins eating dinner and going to bed for 45 days in a row as quickly as possible um there's definitely a difference in the through hikers and the the runner as you would call me um but it's you know again it's how i'm wired i want to go faster so i i i saw all the trail i can assure you i was looking down at the whole time but uh it's different the other way. I think both ways are pretty cool. Oh, yeah. And what a neat experience that will be for you to actually take the opportunity to slow down and do it with your wife, like you mentioned, because it's uh, you can relive a lot of what you saw, but also see a lot of things for the first time at the same time. Oh, for sure. And even, you know, even just the resupplying your food. I mean, I, I'm not going to have three guys or two or three guys or my wife to go to the store and, and feed me a steak and potato every night, you know? <laughs> Um, that's not going to happen. I'm going to be eating whatever is available at the, at the closer store because through hiking on that trail, it's not like you walk by a, you know, a regular grocery store every, every day. Right. I mean, hardly you're lucky sometimes to pass a convenience store that might not be open, you know? Um, so there's a lot more to it by through hiking. I think there's, it's just, it's a different thing. Uh, but for me, you know what I did, that's, that's, uh, it was a once in a once in a lifetime experience, or maybe three times in a lifetime experience, but um, I'm so glad that I finally like accomplished my goal, and it was important for me to be successful this time. Right. Let's talk about the direction that you went. Most through hikers uh, at through hiker speed go south to north, um, but you went. You started in Maine and went south, and a lot of the the record holders have done it that way too. So, what is the difference between the two of them? I know Scott went uh, south to north. Uh, himself he wanted to go the the way that the the regular through hikers go so kind of compare and contrast those a little bit what made you want to go uh start in maine well well first off i think generally most go northbound simply because i mean you can start earlier Mm -hmm. you know i mean you have more time and you get to katahdin in in september and everything's cool and park's not closed um but for southbounders when you're going for the record there's a few ways to look at it number one time of year you know, Scott actually started Scott, – so Scott went northbound. He started in very very end of May, I think. Jen was about middle of June. She kind of played daylight the best, you know, I mean, as far as going southbound. I went a little later because of my race. But when you look at it, when I first went southbound in 2008, it was because Andrew Thompson held the record southbound. And the record was held in that direction. I think if Andrew would have broken that record northbound, I – be willing to bet that I would have done it northbound. Right, right. But I wanted I wanted to go the same direction the record was set, so it was sort of more legit, you know, um, not necessarily legit, but sort of like the same. Yeah, apples, uh, apples or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, so that's why I went southbound. But there's a couple other ways to look at it. You get the harder terrain out of the way first, which is about ten days worth of ugliness through Maine and New Hampshire, 
and then it starts to it's still difficult but it's a little it's not as technical once you reach uh, a town called Glencliff in New Hampshire um, then it's sort of like all of a sudden it changes a little bit and gets a little bit easier so you get the hard stuff out of the way and then you sort of get into your groove and you sort of hope to you know continue a good pace all the way to the end if you go northbound you sort of get warmed up on easier terrain you can gather a little bit better distance off the bat and then hope to be warmed up for the white mountains of new hampshire and then maine so it's it's kind of funny a lot of people say that you know the first 1800 miles are just a warm-up for maine you know <laughs> um <laughs> well it's true it's just because it's just so hard you right. know? it's so technical and there are no switchbacks like you want to go to the top well we're going to go straight up you know and and that's tough i think getting the hard stuff out of the way first is is a little bit easier logistically especially if you're having a crew that work you know works with you for me i had that i had maine like i said i went to maine i said earlier that i went to maine and did the first six days to get it right and when i did that recon effort in september of 2015 uh we got it right. You know, I went by myself. I didn't have anyone else with me. My crew knew exactly every little dirt road and where, what tree to turn into and where to turn, where to find me, where to walk in, where to all those types of things. So that was super beneficial. I think if you're going northbound and the crew doesn't necessarily know the terrain, like Jenny, Jenny Jurek didn't really know the terrain that well at all. You know, she was out there looking for the trail in the middle of nowhere and I helped her a little bit, but then she didn't have cell service. So, it was tough going northbound, not knowing it as well. I had the, I had it really wired, you know. I just think it's better. It worked better for me to go southbound, getting that harder stuff out of the way. And it was my game plan was sort of to get out of New Hampshire and still feel okay, you know, instead of being hammered. And I was successful in doing that, so I knew I, I was off to a really good start until I got hurt near Pennsylvania. Well, I imagine it's such a mental game, you know, like you just laid out. If you can get through the tough stuff the tougher stuff, put it that way, uh, yeah. ahead and you can come out of it, um, you know, with a good mental attitude, then you know what you have in front of you is just going to be a little bit easier. It's uh, yeah, a little bit more manageable. If you are going from the, the south side, you get, like you said, you get a lot of time to warm up, but mentally, mm-hmm. you know, you still have to conquer that pinnacle when you get to the end. So yeah, yeah it's a tough choice. I mean, the way Scott scraped through Maine and New Hampshire was pretty, incre- pretty incredible. I knew he what he was going in for. You know, when I was out there crewing, I left him at about northern Massachusetts. So he, I, I didn't really get into that terrain with him. I kept warning him, it's going to get ugly. It's going to get ugly. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's nothing easy about the south. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not like you're on a carriage road down yeah, there. Right. You've got you've got big hills. I mean, the hills are around Nantahala, even at the very beginning, are brutal. The stuff in Tennessee, you know, North Carolina, all those areas are hard. Southern Virginia is tough. It's just it's just not as technical. That's what makes so it makes your you know, allows you to go further mileage without, you know, slowing you down by default. I mean, Maine, you can be going as hard as you can. You'll never average th- three miles an hour in Maine is pretty ridiculously fast. Um, I mean, three miles an hour, you know, it's not very fast, but uh, it beats you down. And like you said, with the mental part of it is that. You certainly have to look at it as sections. Uh, you know, okay, I'm through New Hampshire, cool. Vermont's not so bad. But there's long sections in Vermont, 17 miles, 21 miles, things like that, that you've got to carry more gear, and you've got to be mentally prepared to deal with that all morning too, you know. 5 a.m. till noon, you go 21 miles or something. Um, it just seems like forever, but it's 
it's so in it's so much so much of this stuff is in your head mm-hmm. um obviously you got to be in good shape and all that kind of stuff but you get your legs sort of after three weeks and for me it was really like hoping that i just wouldn't hurt myself and not by going too hard but just from the overuse of just being out there you know um and lo and behold you know i was when i did my right shin did start to give me some real problems i was on the flattest easiest piece of the at probably in new jersey where i was going across a large sort of open marsh field area uh, it was probably about a mile long of running on grass single track super nice right um but my shin sort of all of a sudden it, like it's sort of like a rubber band broke you know uh, it was like ping i was like oh there it is and then i had to deal with painful issues for about i think eight days seven or eight days or something until it finally subsided but i had to push through all that and give all of that time away that I'd gained early. So, you know, I was, I was way out there. I was doing so well. Everything was so groovy. And all of a sudden, within one second, it was like, poof, things change. And when those changes happen, you have to accept them. You either push on or you go home with your tail between your legs. And this time, for me, um, I wasn't going home with the tail between my legs. As long as I gave, gave it my best effort, you know. Uh, that's really what was important to me is, like, give it all you got this time, Carl, because you know you can do it. You just have to hang in there. And I kept telling myself, it doesn't always get worse, you know. Um, and sometimes it did get worse, but, <laughs> but I rebounded. So, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just part of this, this ultra, ultra running thing is that, you know, it's not, it's not a 5K where you bang it out and it's over. It's like you have to deal with the mental, mental aspect of it. And if you don't have a strong mind, then I don't know if you're in the right sport. You got you to accept challenges uh, with grace. <laughs> right. Uh, and you got to have grit, you know, and or you're not going to be as successful as you'd like to be. Yeah, well, I like that. It doesn't always get worse. You know, it, it certainly yeah. can get worse. And uh, But if you uh, you go into it with a good mental attitude and, and just know that you're going to push through that, that worst time, then there are a lot of good times that will come along with that as well. well. Well, the sun goes down and you get to go to sleep again, right? And you right. wake up the next day and you're like, oh, how am I going to feel? You know, I mean, that's that's the thing you have to accept too is that, you know, if I can just get till nine o'clock, I'll get my miles in, even though they hurt, then I'll get to sleep again. You know, for every night for me, it was like, well, when, when am I going to get to sleep? I'd leave at 5 a.m. Every, every morning I left pretty much at 5 a.m. That was the goal. And I pretty much achieved that goal just about every day, which was great. Um, but I was like, you know, when I get my 52 miles or my 48 miles or whatever it was, I couldn't, I couldn't wait to get to the van. So I get to sleep. And that was really important because for me, sleep deprivation doesn't, doesn't do so well for me so by getting to the van and getting into sleep and actually snoring within 30 minutes of snow or so was pretty impressive uh that was a big help for me and that was that goes back to not just me preparing for it but my crew doing the right thing every single time my dad eric bells my wife cheryl dave horton mike mason lou d'onofrio uh scott jurek the that core of seven people right there made made this happen for me and without them there's no way that you know there's no way i would have broken the record just not possible oh yeah well it's definitely a a team effort there's no doubt about that do you love mountains you are not alone Jerry Roach is well known for his extraordinary and detailed guidebook, Colorado 14ers, but did you know 
that Jerry has written 15 books, including guidebooks to 13ers, Indian Peaks, Rocky Mountain National Park, and more. But he has also written narratives about a lifetime of mountaineering full of Jerry's insights and humor. If you like adventure, then these books are for you. Jerry Roach's books can be purchased at his website, summitsite.com. That's S-U-M-M-I-T-S-I-G-H-T dot com, as well as on Amazon and in bookstores near you. The Bearline Plus by 180 Tech is the handiest Bearline utility cord system you can find. This is not your typical Bearline. Our lightweight cord system is designed to be compact, lightweight, frictionless, and very versatile. Don't risk losing your dinner. Hang it the right way. The Bearline Plus is designed to suspend food between two trees up to 40 feet apart and 15 feet above the ground with much less effort than other Bearlines. Not only does the Bearline Plus keep your food away from bears, it is designed to be useful for many other needs including a motorcycle and ATV recovery system, tie-downs, straps, backpack repair, guy lines for tarp or tent, a tow line, block and tackle, and much, much more. Find your Bearline Plus at 180tech.com or retailers near you. I read that you you were talking about the sleep. I was pretty impressed that you were getting the amount of sleep that you were getting um, because, again, as an outsider looking in on this, I would think, oh, these people are maybe getting three hours if they're lucky each night. But you were yeah. actually getting good solid rest and still able to to break the record by 10 hours. Well, that, that was always my goal was to, get, was to get enough rest. You know, it's funny that I'm fast enough. I can move fast enough on the trail. It was real, more like 3.4 miles an hour. It wasn't even, you know, even three and a half like we mentioned. But the thing, if, you know, if you do the math, you had to average about 48 miles a day to really break the record. So if you go 16 hours at three miles per hour, you've got eight hours of not moving time, right? Mm-hmm. So that eight hours, if you can get in bed within a half an hour and when you get up in the morning, get out within a half an hour, you've got seven hours of sleep. Now, the majority of my days, I didn't go 16 hours. I had some some days where I went 17 or 18, but the majority of my days were 14 to 15. So I was. I was getting seven to eight hours of sleep per night. But the key, again, was the the routine when I was done. I would sit down. It was classic. I would sit down. Eric, Eric Bells, my crew, call him the crew chief. Um, he already had dinner made, tinfoil over the top, hot, ready. I would sit down, I'd clean my feet, which was very important to keep your feet in good shape. And after that took 10 minutes, it was already ready, warm water, soap, the whole deal. My dad had that ready. I did that real quick. You know, I was in a I was in a low chair. I'm sure I was in a higher chair doing that. I would get up for a second, I'd get down in a low chair, I'd elevate my feet, put ice on my shins, and I'd eat dinner as I iced my shins for 15 minutes. And then I would crawl into the van, boom, go right to bed. And we did that every single night for 45 nights. And that was really, really important to do that because it's so easy to sit around, have a couple of beers after your long day, and relax and shoot the shit. And before you know it, two hours passed by when you could have been snoring, could have been sleeping, you know, which when you sleep, your body regrows and recovers. So that was really, really important for me to do that. My crew helped out a lot with that. And then the morning was really the same routine where instead of getting up in the morning and having them cook me a big breakfast – 
it was sort of like, here's a quick thing, take this to go, get moving, we'll get you a real breakfast after, you know, the first stop or something after a couple hours. So that also got me out the door quicker. Uh, so, we, you know, those those plans were refined from me doing recon and from me doing the other two attempts, you know. Uh, the other two attempts, I wanted a big breakfast right off the bat, but that took time, and that was sort of wasted time. And if you waste 20 minutes per day on breakfast, you know, um, you just wasted 45 miles, which equals a whole other day of time on the trail. Right. So, right. so when you do the math over the long period of time, those minutes are actually quite valuable, um, a lot more valuable than you might think. Well, you uh, you mentioned having a beer and, and shooting the breeze, you know, and some you know regular through hiker might do that. But I had to laugh because uh, you actually took some liberties with your caloric intake and what you ate uh, while back at the van along this way. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, uh, you know, I was deemed as eating beer and candy by the New York Times. So I'm <laughs> with that, guys. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't drink just beer and eat candy. Um, but but no, I I'm not a special uh i don't have a special diet for what i was doing for most importantly i was eating as many calories as i possibly could the only person that's done the at on a special you know we'll call it a special diet or call it their own diet whatever um is scott you know and he's scott's vegan so he had jenny was basically his wife was making his meals and she, she certainly knows what to cook and scott was getting you know as many calories as he could in uh but if anyone else that's done the AT trying to break a record, whether it's Dave Horton, Peter Palmer, Andrew Thompson, Jen Farr, all of us ate as much as we could put in our mouths. Um, and it was not the healthiest food, but there was a lot of fat and protein involved. Right. And I was drinking, it's not like I was eating a piece of fried chicken every night either. I mean, I was drinking Ultragen, first endurance recovery drink. I was drinking five servings of that a day. Okay, so I was taking in 1,500 well, about 1,500 calories a day per of that, which is all the best vitamins and minerals, amino acids, and you know that you can take in. So I was getting my my vitamins and minerals and things like that through through the quick uh, call it the liquid source. And then when I wanted calories, something to fill my belly, I would say bring on that piece of chicken or bring on that steak and potato <laughs> for dinner. Um, I hate a lot of pastries out there, you know, um, and that's a sugar thing. That's just like energy, you know. Um, what's funny is that as much of the first endurance ultrogen that I drank, I only had my last gel was on day three. I, uh, I ate all regular type food, if you want to call it that, um, the entire time. And that was really because I wanted to, I just wanted something that would feel more full in my belly. You know, I mean, I can eat gel all day long when I run hundreds, I can eat 45 gels in a day and run a hundred, but I can't, you can't do that every day for 45 days all day it just it just it just gets old you know um so my crew's job was really to mix up my my what they fed me um i told them what i didn't like mayonnaise i don't like mayonnaise i don't like vinegar i don't like sour cream and i don't like nuts in my ice cream that's the only thing that's the only thing i <laughs> care about rules. You know? <laughs> a couple a couple rules you know um so whenever i was had the opportunity to have ice cream which wasn't very often because obviously it melts and we didn't have we had a fridge in the uh, van, but not a freezer. So, you know, when ice cream came, I inhaled ice cream. I ate a whole pint at once in like three minutes at one point and just moved on to the trail and kept going. I mean, that's crazy to think you can do that. But again, right. 
moving three miles an hour, three to four miles an hour, your body can process food a little bit easier because you're not going so fast, heart rate's lower. So you're really able to process that. Call it junk food, junk food if you will. I don't care. I mean, I ate what I needed to eat to get the job done. And being able to sit down there, I remember sitting in front of Dave Horton. Dave Horton um, always brings a bucket of fried chicken. That's like his staple <laughs> and, I, and ice cream. Um, he's done it for me a number of years. And when I was done, I was done one day, I was sitting there and Dave had his bucket of Kentucky fried chicken. I never eat Kentucky fried chicken, but on the AT, it sure is good. Um, finger licking good, right? But uh, Literally. Literally, right. And, and I just like, and I ate like five or six pieces of chicken in front of Dave. And he's like, man, I don't know how you can eat food like that. I could never eat. And I said, Dave, I like to eat food and I can eat it. You know, it was just good. And that was keeping me going. It was just, I wanted, I wanted to go to bed full every night. And I certainly accomplished that. It wasn't like I went to bed depleted because if you go to bed full, sure, it's not the best food for you, but you still have something to help you recover. If you go to bed with nothing, you're just going to deteriorate and wake up in even worse shape. So that's, you know, the food thing was eat what you can and, and, uh, and I'll survive. And that, that was pretty much my motto. Just, they'd ask me what I want. And I said, I just want some food, man. Just feed me. They knew what I didn't They knew what I didn't like. So whatever, they, whatever was there was there. I mean, I think what I ate the most of was probably, uh, Mandarin oranges in a can, which, which is kind of funny, but they're just, you know, sweet, sweet kind of syrup. Yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah, and, and peaches too, and, and pineapple. Um, those things in a can were just like amazing because they were real. They were always really cold for me. Um, I drank a Red Bull probably four or five of those a day. Um, not always the whole can, but you know, it's just a hit of it was great. Um, and that's just a soda drink. You know, it's just more fluid. Um, and I stayed hydrated really well by drinking a lot of uh, a lot of electrolyte drink. And that was pretty much. That was it. And yeah, I had a little candy and I had about one beer after I had like one beer after every day while I sat there and iced my legs. And a lot of times I didn't even really finish that beer. It wasn't like I needed beer. I just kind of liked that first taste of a really cold beer was really good. Right. And after that, I was like, ah, just what, you know, just feed me and I'm going to bed. So it's, you know, what was written in the, in the mags and stuff was, it was entertaining for me to read later. Uh, which it's always funny because everything's always kind of blown up a little bit, but <laughs> Generally speaking, I ate the diet that I normally do, and you know, and I, I it, it was good for me. Well, I think they you know, the reason I bring it up because was because I was intrigued with the the idea that one, um, you can do that, right? So most people would think, yeah, you're going to be on some some special diet that's annoying to to eat and process, and you're not looking forward to whatsoever. But I have to think with foods like that that you could really look forward to and enjoy once you got to your stop, that that has to be some, it has to play a positive role in your, in your mental ability to pull through at the same time. I mean, there's a little reward there nobody wants to use food as a reward, but it really is because you're on the trail. You're just drinking water. You're like, you're, you're pounding gels and that kind of thing. You get to the point where you want something really, really, really good. And I imagine that had a lot to do with uh, with pulling through some of these these down. Yeah. Down I, I mean, every time I finished a 100-miler, I think – and you'll, you can ask a lot of ultra runners. They'll probably say the same thing is that, man, I just crave junk food. Right. You know, I crave maybe like a quarter pounder with cheese. You know, like I never go to those places to eat that stuff. But, but man, it's just like you feel like you deserve that, that crap sometimes. And 
like, you know, with the fried chicken, I was like, man, it tasted so good. I took some of that in a baggie when I would walk along sometimes, you know. And, man, this is like a, it was a special treat because it's not something you do all the time. If I was restri- restricted to a very specific diet, every a specific meal every day, I think that would be something I wouldn't, like you said, I wouldn't really be looking forward to it every day. So I'd be like, oh, I got to eat this or that or whatever it was, you know. Um, what amazing thing, too, if you look back at it. So when I was finished, I lost three pounds, which is essentially that's nothing, you know. Um, Scott lost 18 pounds. So when he was near the finish, he was he was like pulling from, you know, the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, no reserves um, left. Yeah, yeah, the three full. pounds thing blew me away. I couldn't believe you could spend 45 days out on the trail, 2,200 miles, and only lose three pounds. Yeah, I mean, that just goes to the fact that I was I was, I was was eating as much as I could. I mean, every right. time I stopped at the van, um, I was only there for two or three minutes. But I would, I would just be like, my crew, Eric, and my dad, and, and Cheryl, would put on a little table we had, they would put a display. They have an aid station for me every single time, like you would see it in an ultramarathon. And it was better than what you'd see in most ultras, really. I mean, <laughs> not necessarily nutrition-wise, but just like the variety, the well, they knew what I liked, you know. Um, and, and and it was like, cool, boom, 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 boom. I could pull, pull back five or 700 calories right there and then, and then take certainly take some to go and just keep eating as I kept going. Um, and every time I would eat, I'd have a little pouch for my on my little pack. Um, we pretty much filled that pouch, depending how far it was, but... We'd fill the pouch, and I'd usually get to the van with something still left in the pouch. But I was eating constantly as I was going along, you know, kind of like an IV drip. So I was constantly eating food the whole time. So that definitely provided me, you know, the energy to keep moving for sure. I mean, I, I had I had little moments, of course, but generally speaking, I always had food on me to consume. And that definitely, uh, that, helps, that helps a ton. I mean, when people talk about in races where... They talk themselves out of, you know, finishing. They drop out of mile 70 because they just didn't want to go any further and they were tired or whatever. Well, a lot of that has to do with just eating food. Um, put some more sugar in your in your in down your throat <laughs> and uh, you know, your brain will start working again and you'll start feeling more positive and you'll have more energy and you'll keep going. So I focused on just making sure that I did not go hungry. And, you know, obviously it worked for me. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Well, anytime we're talking about through hiking and, and one of these three trails, um, trail angel stories often come up. And I think you had one in Virginia uh, when you had an is- uh, issue with a blister. You want to tell that story? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the blister story in Virginia. So another big turning point for me, I was dealing with a lot of pain underneath my left foot. I I have an aroma in my left foot and my right foot, really. So an aroma is when your nerve is inflamed sort of between your toes. And mm. when your nerve becomes inflamed, it becomes like radiant pain and it hurts like hell. Um, so it sort of feels like you're stepping on on a, like a marble in your shoe. Okay, so think about that pain for a, for a second. Right. So that pain, okay, so I'm walking along and that pain was had been there for like a week. And I was just pretty much figuring it was my, my neuroma that was bothering me. I didn't really see a blister under my foot that was kind of, you know, that bad. So I'm like, it's just my neuroma, whatever, just deal with it. And I did a few tricky things. You know, I'd cut out a little hole in my insole, give myself a little more room, little minor things like that. But I was in Southern Virginia near the James James River, and there's a big big crossing there. And a friend of mine named Jonathan, Jonathan Basham lives near there. And I was hoping that Jonathan would come out and say hello 
Um, he's a stay-at-home dad. His, his wife's a, a doctor. And she happened to be off that one particular day when I, when I was in his area. So she got the kids. Jonathan got to come out to say hello. Well, he came out, and Jonathan, he's the guy who holds the record on the long trail, so he's no rookie. He helped crew Andrew Thompson on his adventures on the AT, so he's, again, no rookie. And he was just looking at it and just like, man, you know, I think you have a really deep blister there. It's really not your neuroma. So let's try to, so let's see if we can get fluid out of that thing. So, you know, so he randomly shows up on a day that his wife is off. And an ER doctor doesn't necessarily have every day off. You know, it's kind of like she's working all the time, kind of depends, you know. But for this particular time, he was able to come out and see me. So we kind of, we poked around with a um, closed pin which is the only first aid real needle that I had. I had a lot of other first aid stuff, but I didn't really have a very good needle. But he comes back. He said, hey, tomorrow morning I'll show up at Pettit's Gap, uh, the next section down the trail, 13 miles down the trail, and I'll bring a, a surgical needle and we'll try to get fluid out. So, we, you know, that first time you saw him, we poked a little with that uh, the clothespin, got a little bit, but it didn't really solve the problem. Um, next morning, like textbook, Jonathan had gone home that night. He came back the next morning with the needle, and we got it in there because it's, you know, obviously it's super sharp. And we stuck my foot. I did, I did the sticking. I didn't let anyone else do that. <laughs> um, but we kind of identified where. And I stuck it. I kind of pulled fluid out of there. And I was a new person. I'm like, I can run again. How about that? I mean, I hobbled into the car, the van that night, like wincing in pain with every step. And, you know, like my whole adventure could be over. But then... Jonathan just happened to be, you know, he got up at three o'clock in the morning and drove out there and he was there right at four o'clock. Like he said, like he said he would be. And, you know, it took five minutes to get that out of there. And I put my shoe on and I started walking with my wife that morning. She went a few miles with me and it, it didn't hurt, you know? And I was like, wow, <laughs> um, that was, that was a game changer. And yeah, that allowed, that, me to, that, that was, a, that allowed me to keep going. If there's a trail engine moment, that was definitely the one. Um, so he, he deserves a lot more credit than not, not than anyone else, of course, but he deserves a lot more credit than he's really given because that was something that probably made the record happen. And he'll, he'll be like, eh, you know, yeah, whatever. I'm glad to help, you know, but that was a huge thing. Jonathan Basham, he, he made a big difference. Well, that's cool. Well, I guess he deserves, you know, half of the gold medal that you get awarded for doing something like this right yeah I'm still waiting for that to come in the mail not here yet. <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> all right so the last day um 45 days on the trail and timing wise you can see that you're going to break the record but yeah. that wasn't enough so you went what 86 miles you decided not to sleep that last night and you kept on pressing through to to basically break the record as as by as much time as you could. Yeah. When it was, so when I was about a week out, uh, against about Southern Virginia, somewhere there, um, I knew that as long as my body would hold up and of course that you never know, but I knew if my body held up, I could get it. Um, when I was at, so on four at Davenport gap. So I was basically following Jen far Davis's itinerary to ease, to easily know where I was, you know, at all times. Um, a place called Davenport gap, which is 31.4 miles from newfound gap which is the center of the Smokies. And between that 31 miles, there's no support. And so instead of, when I got to Davenport Gap, it was kind of, it was like maybe six in the evening. It was pretty early. 
And I could have certainly pushed on, slept on the trail, you know, a couple hours later and moved forward. But I said, no, I'm going to rest here. This is exactly where Jen was. So we basically we basically stayed in the same location four days out, and, and which was 240 miles, and which is pretty far, you know. But I knew the last day I could blow out 80 miles if I had to. I did that in 2008, too, from the exact same place called Deep Gap, actually. So when I left Davenport Gap that morning, Jen only went to Klingman's Dome, which is the very highest point on the AT in Smokies, and she slept there, somewhere near there. And I continued on in the dark, and I met Scott Jurek in the woods. He, he lugged in my tent, my sleeping bag, a pad for me to sleep on, and we slept at a shelter. <laughs> cool. Which, yeah, I mean, he actually crewed for me that morning, too, for 20 miles. He did a huge that – was, that was a massive day for Scott. And that put me 15 miles ahead of where Jen was, right? So now, now I'm ahead of virtual Jen, <laughs> um, who was essentially chasing me in my mind. But when she when she broke the re- Andrew Thompson's record, she was a full day ahead of Andrew at that point. So she didn't really have to sort of like push that last day at the end mm-hmm. um, to break. She just kind of had to do her 55 mile days, which is still big, but she had to do that, and she had it by a full day. Me, on the other hand, I knew I knew where I was with her, and I knew that. Well, I'm just going to go through the night. Why should I stop? You know, I mean, what's another guy? What's another seven or eight hours at this point? And to be honest with you, I mean, that 85 miles was classic. I went through 42-mile 40, split was exactly 12 hours. Um, I remember that. It was exactly on my watch, 42 miles was 12 hours. So then I essentially negative splitted that 85-mile day. And because my body was on such autopilot, I certainly smelled the barn, you know. Um, and I had Jurek on me. Scott and I went the last 30 miles together too. And that was cool because – you know, I didn't get, I don't get to run with Scott very often. And he's a good friend of mine. And so we can kind of like, we chatted about stuff from, you know, back in the day in 2002 and we raced in Hong Kong and things like that. So it sort of kept my mind off how far I had left to go. And we just kept chugging along, chugging along. And he's like, man, you're, you're, you're running great. I'm like, yeah, we're almost there, you know, like whatever. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden, you know, we finally there and, I'm not going to say it wasn't that hard. It wasn't that much harder to go 85 on the last day than it was to go 50 the day before, honestly, because you knew the end was there, you right, know? Right, I mean, you're going to stop. I mean, Springer Mountain is only a mile from the parking lot. It's not like I had to go up Katahdin and walk back down either. Um, it was much easier. So, ironically, the same thing, you know, what, funny that when I say all the stars line up on this one, too, is that it rained on me four days, and the funniest thing, I don't think it rained... I mean, near the end, it didn't rain for a couple of weeks. Ironically, I get to the top. We, you know, we did a photo, an interview, a chat, whatever. Walk back to the car. We get back to the car. It started raining. And <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I mean, I had to laugh. I'm like, it's man, <laughs> it really clicked this year in terms of, like the weather really stayed in my favor. Um, it was pretty incredible. I, it didn't rain until I got out of New Hampshire and the nasty, ugly stuff coming southbound the first ten days. Did not rain once then. So that was another thing that was like, wow, how did that happen? How did you go all the way through Maine, New Hampshire, and it didn't rain once? That's like, you know, one out of one out of a hundred times that would happen. Right. So I, I got lucky. I mean, in a lot of a lot of aspects of things that happened out there, um, there were some trail angels of that weren't even people. You know, um, I came up to a shelter in Maine. It was actually a stormy day, but I came up to a shelter in Maine. 
The second I got to the shelter, it poured for nine minutes. I laid in the shelter for nine minutes. It stopped raining as fast as it started, and I walked out, and I never got wet. <laughs> you know, I bet yeah. there's a lot of that. You know, things just, they need to fall in place at the same time. I mean, you can prepare and prepare and prepare and be very methodical about your planning. Um, but if things don't go your way, it really can throw everything on its head. Well, that, that 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 was like day three, and that was so incredible because I could see in the ridge that a storm was sort of moving towards me. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get soaked, you know, but 20 minutes go later, and I said, it's so weird that the very, very second I stepped under that, I, you know, trail went right by the shelter. There were two other people in there, and I had a little time. I was like, I can, I can, I can stay here a half an hour and stay dry. And the whole idea about staying dry, I wasn't cold or anything, but when your feet get wet, you, you, you want to keep your feet in good shape, so... When they get wet, they tend to blister easier. Um, things happen, you know. So I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna lay here, and I got 30 minutes. If it's still pouring in 30 minutes, I'll just go and deal with it. But nine minutes later, it just stopped, and it was like, bam. I walked out, and I'm like, no. The sun came out, and I was like, boom. My crew got hammered on rain. <laughs> they were driving around when they couldn't even see it was raining so hard, but not me. I was up on the mountain, and I stayed dry. It was weird. I mean, little, little, little things like that happened. Uh, I only fell in the water one time in Maine when I crossed one river, and that was impossible because the river was like 50 yards wide, and I had to get wet. But that was the only time my feet got wet in Maine was one river. And then I had crew four-tenths of a mile after that where I changed my shoes and my socks. I got dry, and I went off again. So it didn't really matter, you know. Um, little stuff like that happened along the way that that were, you know, to my bonus effect. Um but that's how it is on the AT. That's how things happen. You have to sort of get lucky to be successful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, it goes back to the the mental aspect of it. Again, you know, you can have uh, weather and situations that can really bring you down. If you can't plow through it, then then you're done yep. for. But if you can manage to get through it mentally and you have a little help, you know, from, from Mother Nature, then uh, it can make a, a world of difference. Yeah, I had some help. No doubt about it. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Well, let's talk about uh, Speed Goat, the name speed goat how did you come about being nicknamed a speed goat uh a few friends of mine and i were driving home from the pikes peak marathon one year i early 90s i'm going to say i'm not sure what year it was but um so a long time ago and we're driving home we're just kind of chatting yakking about nothing you know we're in the uh we'll call it eastern utah desert between grand junction and uh sort of the exit to moab there and we're just driving along and, and a little rabbit or something crossed the road. And hey, I'm like, hey, look, it's a speed goat. And that just popped out of my mouth like out of nowhere. <laughs> like, like, you know, I don't know why, but it did. And it's funny because my buddy and I, Scott Mason and I, we kind of talk about, well, who said it first? Um, I said, I have to claim it because I'm a little faster than you are. Um, <laughs> Scott's no slouch either, but, you know, not get, not taking anything away from him. But, right. but um that that name sort of like, you know, that was just between a couple of guys yakking. Uh, but then a few a couple of years later, I entered the Zane Gray 50, and the race director said, Carl Speedgoat Meltzer. Actually, Carl Wasatch Speedgoat Meltzer. And, and it was like, oh, what, well, that's kind of funny. That's, you know, but then I sort of like said to myself, well, yeah, that's a really cool name. You know, that's kind of a cool nickname. So I sort of started to plug – I sort of started to plug myself a little bit as that. And it, then it's just started to stay after it's stuck for a while. Then you don't need to plug it, of course, you know, but I sort of thought it was pretty cool. And, and it just kind of stuck with me. And then the whole thing about speed goat 50 K and, 
you know, my trail name on the AT is Speed Goat, of course. Um, so everyone gets their, their name. I just think it's a cool name for one who goes across the rocks quickly. Goats <laughs> go across the rocks fast. Speed means fat. You know, it's just kind of fit. And uh, yeah, it just stuck with me a long time. And I think it, it's now you know I've got a shoe from Hoka named Speed Goat that's out um, on the market. That's kind of my shoe. And that's that's like an honor to have something like that. I mean, how many people have their shoe? Michael Jordan and LeBron James? Yeah, you know? right. Right. I mean, seriously, like that is rad. I mean, I don't sell as many as Michael Jordan, but uh, but that's okay. You know, it, just to have that, um, you know, I've got a pack from Ultraspire named Speedgo. We've got Speedgo Dry Max socks. So I've sort of created a brand out of it, and um, and it's kind of sticking with me. And you know, I'll probably take that to my grave, hopefully, um, a long time from now when I'm running those marathons at age seventy. That's right. Uh, that's right. You know, um, that's just one of those things that sort of stuck, and and now. The more I put that out in the market, the more uh, beneficial it is to me, I guess. Well, I like it. I think it's fitting. I like the story behind it. Yeah. So tell me about the Speedgoat 50K. I did want to talk about that. So you're uh, this is a run that you uh, you have put together in Snowbird, Utah? Yeah, the Speedgoat 50K is in Snowbird, Utah, as you said. This year is July 28th, 29th. Um, I started this race. This will be the 11th year already, which is blows my mind. Uh, but the whole idea for me behind the race was, it's kind of a funny story how that started too. I used to be a bartender up at Snowbird. Um, like I said, I was a ski bum when I moved out West, right? So I bartended at Snowbird and the events director came, comes down and he sits down at the bar and, and, uh, his name is John and he's like, Hey, do you think if we had a race here, you could, you could get a hundred people here the first year? I'm like, no problem. Um, and you know, I was like, well, I didn't really know if I get a hundred or not, but I was like, yeah, I bet I can get 100. And so we kind of thought about a plan. This was in March, so we sort of had to put the plan to, together quickly. Um, put the word out, blah, 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 you know, et cetera, et cetera. 112 people started that first year. So that was like we deemed that a huge success, you know. Um, we got it. It was, it was kind of a mess. People got lost. Um, there were some issues. I was a new race director. I mean, sure, I can run races, but I hadn't directed a race before. I mean, I work in a restaurant business, so I sort of know how things work. I mean, that's kind of the same, but but at the same time, uh, there were some issues. But you know, now it's developed into a world class race. There's a large prize purse, twenty thousand dollars. Hoka Hoka one one is really the the kicker behind that. Uh, so thank them for that one. You know, um, but that's it's just I made the race as hard as possible, and that's sort of my mantra. Is like I like hard, tough races. And when we started that race 11 years ago, it was definitely the toughest 50K in the country. Nothing would compare to that. And that was the whole idea was to make it tough where people suffer, but they still, they love it at the end, you know. They can be swearing at me all day long and swear at me at the finish line. But when they get to the finish line, they sit down and they're done. They're, they're psyched about their accomplishment. And that was sort of my goal was to make this a, a really hard, difficult race that people remember. And want to come back every, you know, every couple of years. I don't expect people to come back for ten years in a row. That's it's a little overkill, maybe. But you know, the way sports growing, I like to see the the race continue to be one of the one of the destination sort of fifty k's in the country. And you know, we've pretty much succeeded at that. And Snowbird has been really great with um, kind of letting me take the reins when I you know when I have the race. I mean, I worked there seventeen years, so I certainly know where all the closets where they hide stuff. <laughs> you know, I know where to get things. Um, where to look and who to ask and who to talk to to get things done. And that definitely helps. That helps. Uh, 
it's not like I'm dealing with someone I don't know. So it's it's a really great relationship I have with them, and uh, hopefully we'll just continue to have the race as long as I can, long as or long as I desire to be a race director. And I you know I see that going for a while longer. It's uh it's been successful. There's no reason it won't be successful in the future. Oh yeah, sounds like it's going well, and uh, wish you all the luck and in moving into the the future with it. So registration February 10th, I think you said. Where do people go to uh, to check it out? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, registration opens February 10th. Uh, CarlMeltzer.com. You can just click on Spigo 50K. It's right there in the middle there, and that will link you to the Ultra Sign Up uh, Sign Up page. You can go right to Ultra Sign Up too and just punch in Spigo 50K. But the real information about the race is on my website. So you'll, you know, you'll get a few warnings of this is a hard one. <laughs> um, be prepared for it. You know, you might want to train a little bit for it. Uh, it's going to take you longer than you think, which is the case for everyone. Uh, that's the whole draw of it. You know, it's, it's right in the end of July when the wildflowers are pretty much usually at their peak up in the Wasatch Mountains. So it's, it's a really spectacular course. Uh, it's high altitude, you know, the whole deal. First class aid stations, the whole gig. So, um, it's really a great event, and, and you know, it being a 50k for ultra runners, um, midsummer is like you know it's kind of like hundred mile season in a way for mountain races. But this one sort of fits in between some of the bigger races too, so you can kind of do this 50k as a trainer, sort of speak, and uh, and still run hundreds. So it's yeah, February 10th is when it opens up. We expect it to fill you know fill pretty quickly. It's it won't go in 10 minutes like some races do, but uh, you know if you want to run a good a great 50k and have the classic beer and pizza at the end and not feel like it's a really hyped up uh uh man fest or i don't know if that's the right word but for a hyped up race it's really about us having fun out there and I, I you know i take a lot of pride in being there for every runner that crosses the finish line too so you'll see me out there as well and that's something that i, I like i said i take a lot of pride in doing that and sometimes races the race director will run around with his head cut off and that's me included. Right. Believe me, I'm all over that too, but, but it's important for me to be there for everyone at the end. And, uh, from the, from the lead runner to the, to the person who finishes in 12 and a half hours from, you know, five to 12 and a half hours, I'm, I'll stand there and, and greet you. So I think that's one special thing about the race. Yeah, very cool. Well, it sounds like a blast. All right. So it's carlmeltzer.com and I know you didn't bring it up, but I'm going to plug you anyway. You have some coaching services on that site as well. So, um, we'll, we, we will put the link to your site as well as, uh, all of your, your social media stuff. Uh, so people can find you, follow you and get over to carlmeltzer.com to check out the, uh, speed goat 50 K as well as check out your consulting services. So, Carl, man, it was a blast talking to you. We went a little bit longer than I normally do, but it's because it was uh, it was fun hearing about this uh, this this AT thing. And I think I love the camaraderie that you guys show together. I mean, you helping Scott out when he's going to to break the record, and then he, him coming back and and helping you on the, you know by supporting you, but also running the uh, the last thirty miles and you know, without hiding behind a tree wanting to club your knee or something to, to keep his record, you know, intact. I well, think that says a lot about the sport, and I think it's awesome to uh, to have you come on and be able to share that. Very cool. Well, the one last funny thing I have to say, which is pretty hilarious, is Jenny, his wife, kept saying, hey, Carl, don't you want to sleep the last night? Don't you want to sleep make it close? <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> no, right. No, <laughs> Jenny, I'm going to keep going. Um, it is special. I've been, I've been trying to plug Jeff Browning. I don't know if you know Jeff Browning, but he's won a lot of hundreds. He's uh, – he would be a prime candidate to go after the AT record again, and I'm trying to get him to go for it. And um, 
anyway, if that happens, I think Scott and I would be the first two people to help crew for him, you know? That's awesome. And that's what ultra running is. I mean, I'm, if Jeff has a chance to go after my record, bring it on. I will help that guy as much as I can because it's, it's what it's all about. Records are meant to be broken and they, they'll all be broken eventually. You know, that's just how the world works. Right. And, uh, Hope maybe we'll see a world record tonight in Dubai, so we shall see. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. All right, good deal, Carl. Well, thanks again for your time. I really do appreciate it. You enjoy your evening, sir. Thanks very much, Travis. Have a great night. You too, thanks. Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and be sure to tell all your friends about the show. Everybody deserves a little adventure. Until the next episode, get out there and try something new. Mm-hmm.